Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 44 of Hack to Start. This episode features Catherine Haig, the co-founder of ShopLocket. She has been named one of Canada's 100 most powerful women and one of the five women to watch for wearable technology. Franco and I wanted to invite Catherine onto the show to share her insights and experiences as an entrepreneur, community builder, and angel investor. This is an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Catherine. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks so much, Tyler. Excited to chat. So let's start off by getting to know a bit about you. Where are you from? What did you study? And how did your passion for entrepreneurship develop? My name's Catherine. I'm from Toronto. I went to the Schultz School of Business, which is based just outside of Toronto. Um, and I did my BBA there with a specialization in marketing and entrepreneurship. I've sort of always known that I wanted to start my own company. I probably registered my first business when I was 12 years old, and of course it didn't really go anywhere, Um, (laughs) but uh, it was always just a passion of mine to think of ideas and find ways to try to make them real, and there was nothing more inspiring to me than hearing an entrepreneur's story of how they created their life and um, brought their ideas uh, to the public, and I joined an organization called Impact when I was 16 years old um, that planned entrepreneurship conferences. And it really opened my eyes to these incredible stories and really relatable people that were doing inspiring things as an entrepreneur. And I worked a lot on planning those events, got to meet dozens and dozens of entrepreneurs who were speakers at my events, Um, went on to go to Schulich for business school, thinking business school, you know, had something to do with starting a business, which Mm -hmm. it turns out it doesn't really. Um, And while I was there, I started doing some consulting work um, to just sort of figure out what I like doing and where I like working. And everything I do just seems to go back to this common theme of being fascinated by entrepreneurial stories and my love working for and with entrepreneurs. Um, So I ended up working at a startup right out of university, a company called Ecobee here in Toronto, which is a competitor to Nest, and Nest didn't actually exist at the time. Um, And from that, I actually started on the side building Shopify themes where I'd help entrepreneurs, business owners uh, create their first store uh, using my theme. And that led me to start ShopLocket. Um, which was basically embeddable stores that could go anywhere. And we've now worked with tens of thousands of small businesses and entrepreneurs that have used ShopLocket, um, mostly in the hardware space, um, after Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Um, And now that we've been acquired by PCH, uh, I now run all of our community engagement and events, and I spend my days on the phone with entrepreneurs, helping them figure out the next step and how to launch and how we can um, bring their products to consumers. So the whole thread of my life is not just being an entrepreneur, but being an entrepreneur that absolutely loves helping and working with other small businesses. That's such a great story. So, so as you mentioned, you're the co-founder of ShopLocket. 
and uh, you gave us a bit of a description about what it is. But how did you acquire your first set of customers? So I'd say we were incredibly naive. Uh, we thought that okay, this is a cool technology. No one's ever been able to sell you know easily by embedding products on their sites before. Everyone's going to want this. It's going to be amazing. It's our slogan was actually sell anything from anywhere, right? Like we thought mm-hmm. this was literally something anyone could use and. Um, the technology was actually adopted, um, you know, relatively well in terms of the fact that people were interested and they were using it and they were signing up. Um, but we definitely weren't getting much stickiness. We weren't, you know, solving a major pain point for anyone. Everyone thought it was interesting, but not, oh my God, thank God this exists. Right. Mm -hmm. And it took us a long time, uh, about eight months after our official launch to figure out, you know, what market we're actually save, solving a main pain point for. Um, we went to YouTubers, we went to WordPress bloggers, we tried the music industry, and what ended up being the market for us was pre-orders, post-Kickstarter, and Indiegogo. And this revelation came when a local company, um, Interaxon, which product is Muse, came to us um, right before Christmas, I think this would have been in 2012, and said that they were about to go to CES, uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, and they were going to need a way to take pre-orders because their Indiegogo campaign had just ended, and they didn't want to start a Shopify store because they didn't want to take people's money yet because it was still like a year before the product would ship. And we did a small hack on our ShopLocket system that would allow us to collect credit cards and not charge them immediately, um, something that wasn't possible on our platform or really any other platform before that. And they did more sales in one week of these pre-orders than we had ever had in that's total amazing. on the platform before. Um, so as you can imagine, that's sort of uh, <laughs> the kind of thing where you sort of hit over the head with, okay, this is what we should be doing. <laughs> yeah. um, and I moved to San Francisco for uh, three months as part of a program called the Canadian Technology Accelerator, which gives Canadian companies space in San Francisco where they can work for three months. And I just met with every single Kickstarter, Indiegogo, hardware company that you could possibly imagine. I'd have just 10 coffees back to back, hearing their story, hearing you know what they did after their crowdfunding campaigns. If they were in the middle of a crowdfunding campaign, I would make sure that we would turn on um, the pre-order feature specifically for them, even though it wasn't a public feature across our site yet. And by the time we publicly launched pre-orders about six months later, um, we already had about 100 amazing clients um, with it sort of privately turned on. And that was the turning point for our company. This insight changed everything about how we marketed ourselves, how we talked about ourselves. And it's what created that momentum for the company, despite the fact that the product really never changed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's just that one initial switch. (laughs) So so ShopLocket raised over 1 million as seed round. What was it like going through this process? And are there any tips to share for other entrepreneurs trying to raise um, some initial funding? Yeah, of course. So I had never raised money before ShopLocket and it was a really stressful process. Um, just not knowing whether we would find someone having literally hundreds and hundreds of pitch meetings, 
um, trying to find the right fit. People would seem interested, and then a week later, it you know looked like it wasn't going to work out. Um, there were so many times where after work, um, myself, my co-founder, and our one employee at the time would just go sit on a patio and be like, I just don't know if this is going to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you keep pushing ahead, and you keep you know, doing the next thing and iterating and taking in feedback from your customers and from the investors um, and finding those things that motivate humans to make decisions, right? It's so easy to say for an investor to say, not yet, not yet, not yet. So how do you create urgency that will make someone invest now? And I think that's really where we ended up, you know, when I look back on it, I think that's where we did well. Uh, at the time, I had no idea I was creating urgency, but we did things like, you know, of course, people frame their fundraising around their accelerator demo day and sort of have it that you're going to close the round, you know, a week after demo day. So everyone needs to get in before demo day or else they might get left out. Um, I did something um, where I would fly to San Francisco very often and um, there's this Canadian mentality that if a company is raising money in the US it must be uh, a really sexy hot company Um, and Canadian (laughs) investors tend to be followers so every time I flew to San Francisco and I came back to Canada the Canadian investors were even more interested in the company which was pretty hilarious Mm -hmm. Um, and (laughs) And then our accelerator itself um, was a brand new accelerator. It's now one of the larger accelerators in Canada, but it was brand new at the time. And the mentors and the investors in the accelerator were very motivated to try to have success stories out of their first cohort. Mm -hmm. Um, So we got a ton of support from the investors um, that were already invested in our accelerator to help us close our round um, because they really wanted to see us succeed. So I think it ends up being just this uh, melting pot of factors that come together that, that make it possible. Speaking of accelerators, you went through one. So would you recommend that founders go through an accelerator? And what were some of the pros and cons with your experience with ShopLocket? Uh, so I'd say yes. I definitely recommend that people go through an accelerator. But every accelerator is different and no matter what accelerator you choose, I think you just need to be extremely honest with yourself about what that accelerator actually offers. Um, you know, Y Combinator, extremely well known. It adds this like brand cachet to your company. You get this incredible network of um, founders that then will support you and work with you in this amazing community. Um, you probably get a boost in valuation. Um, and those are some of the things that come to my mind when I think of Y Combinator. Um, I went to Extreme Startups, which was a brand new Canadian accelerator that every accelerator is going to tell you, we have the best mentors in the world. We give the best advice in the world. We you know, will help you raise your round. And you just have to be really honest when you're looking at that. It's like, well, do they have the best mentors in the world? No. <laughs> um, are they going to help me raise my round you know, better than any other accelerator? Probably not. But what it did have going for it was that it was going to start really soon. Um, we would be able to go completely heads down for three months um, with some funding and make progress on the company really quickly. Um, We would be part of this first cohort that legitimately did get real investment support from the venture capitalists that were backing extreme startups. And it gave us the money to basically survive to get to the next step. And, you know, we were really 
honest with ourselves about what it, this accelerator could give us and couldn't give us and weighed those options and decided this was the right thing for us at the time. Um, and I just think that people need to look at the accelerator opportunity, look at what they're trying to get out of it uh, and see if it is the right match for them. Um, there's definitely better accelerators for hardware than other accelerators, yeah, which might not be so great for hardware. Um, so I think, you know, you weigh it and you figure out what makes sense for you and you just make it work. <laughs> Through everything we've talked about so far, ShopLocket was acquired in early 2014 by PCH International. So first of all, who is PCH and what did they do and how did you end up being acquired? Yeah, so PCH is a large manufacturing and supply chain company that helps everyone from Fortune 500 companies to young startups. Um, it's actually a 20-year-old company founded by Liam Casey, who's Irish, but uh, at this point, the company's main operations are in Shenzhen, China, um, where we have thousands of employees that help you know, bring these products to life for brands all around the world. Um, over the past three to four years, I'd say, uh, Liam and the team at PCH um, have really become invested in and passionate about not just helping the big guys bring hardware products to market, but actually helping this new movement of hardware startups get the same level of quality in their production and in their distribution that an Apple or a Beats might have access to. Um, and that's really what PCH is doing with Highway One, which is our incubator, with PCH Access, which is our startup manufacturing program, and with a lot of the things that I do as um, the head of community engagement and hackathons, where we go around the world hosting events, meetups, lunches, workshops, uh, to really help accelerate startup companies to the next level and give them a path um, towards um, getting out there into the market. Um, so. That's PCH. It's really a fascinating company. Um, I work on the side of it that works a lot more with startups, um, but we work with companies of all sizes. Um, the way that we ended up at PCH is that once we found ourselves uh, in the hardware space, we started creating a ton of resources for hardware startups. Um, you mentioned the Blueprint, which is our interview series, and we've interviewed over 150 hardware entrepreneurs and influencers in hardware, collecting their stories uh, to share online for other founders or people in the space to learn more about. Um, we also wrote a Launch Academy, which collected all of our learnings from those interviews and created a guide on how to prototype, launch, market, find retail partners, manufacture a hardware product, really step by step. Um, and in doing all of that, um, we were able to connect with a lot of different people in hardware. And I got to a point where I realized I was talking so much about hardware, um, but I had never actually you know, been on the ground to Shenzhen to see manufacturing. And I went out uh, to Shenzhen about four months before the company was acquired um, on my own just to see what was going on on the ground there. And that's when I really got to sit down and meet with Liam, who runs PCH. And it turned out that PCH was really looking for ways to provide similar community resources and education uh, and even some of the commerce activities that we were doing with ShopLocket to their community uh, in order to add more value to the startup ecosystem. And there was just so much overlap between where we were headed uh, in terms of creating all of these resources and building this hardware startup community and where PCH was going um, that within 
three months of uh, first sitting down and meeting with Liam, um, we became part of PCH uh, in January of last year. Um, so now what's happened is a lot of the things that are part of our commerce strategy um, at ShopLock are actually being rolled into Fab.com, which is a recent acquisition um, of PCH. And all of our educational resources and interviews and meetups, all of that is now under the PCH community engagement and hackathon arm, um, which my team here in Toronto now runs. You mentioned that you're the global hackathon lead for PCH International. Can you tell us a bit more about how you organize and market these types of events? We decide on cities that we think are going to be interesting, that have a cool mix of uh, people in design, software, and hardware, um, where we've seen demand for hardware meetups and hardware hackathons, and where we've seen great leads come um, to our PCH access program and our Highway 1 program, um, and we find local partners, local venues um, that we think would be great partners to work with for the event. Uh, for example, we're working with Cocoon, which is a co-working space in Hong Kong. We're working with DCU, um, which is a university in Dublin. Uh, we're working particularly with their Innovation Center, which has been an amazing partner. Um, and we find these great partners in these cities. Um, we find venues that can host an awesome hackathon, and then we get out there and we find every meetup group, every influencer in that particular community, and get them involved in the hackathon, um, whether it's as a panelist or a mentor, as a marketing partner. Um, we really put a lot of effort into making each event very connected to the local community. So in parallel to this, you, as you mentioned before, you're currently the VP of the Blueprint. So how are you growing this site and what kind of resources are, are you using? Um, so the Blueprint um, is really limited right now to our interview series, um, which we've done one interview a week for about two years now. And there was even a period where we did one interview a day. Um, I'd say that the Blueprint interview series is, is just a personal passion of mine. I love hearing founder stories. Um, the interviews go out to our mailing list, um, which is quite a large mailing list of uh, people that are interested in hardware and hardware news every week. Um, so we're always looking for the next up-and-coming, cool hardware founder that we can feature on the Blueprint or uh, amazing influencer in the hardware space that we can feature. Um, it's, it's something that at this point, it just keeps going where we love doing it. It happens every week. It's a, it's a main part of how we like to tell the story of um, cool innovators in hardware. Um, but it's just a small component of the overall platform that we're trying to create um, for founders. So based on your experience, what is it like building a startup in Toronto? What are some of the biggest benefits and challenges that you've had with building ShopLocket? I think it's sort of that uh, big fish, small pond type analogy. Um, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I think that you know, once we launched and we we're able to raise funding and we we're able to get some amount of media coverage in the States, all of a sudden our profile within Toronto became elevated. And um, we were asked to speak at more events. We were asked to be in the media. We were asked to um, take part in certain grants and opportunities um, because we were one of a relatively small number of um, these startups in Toronto. Um, whereas were we thrown into San Francisco and chose to start our company in San Francisco, uh, you can imagine that the competition to speak at events, to get grants or funding, 
um, is much, much more. And, and there's a lot of noise and it's really hard for your company to stand out. Um, so for us, I think being in Toronto um, really helped us get all of the opportunities that were, existed locally. That said, I have been on a plane to San Francisco probably every month since I started uh, ShopLocket. Um, some periods, you know, longer than that. Um, and I think that understanding the culture of San Francisco and Silicon Valley, having the relationships with the media there, with investors, even with your own competitors or people in your industry is incredibly important, if for nothing else, than to elevate your game when you get back to Toronto, to realize that there are people that are incredibly smart, that are working day in and day out in co-working spaces, surrounded by other startups, um, a feeling that you don't get as much in Toronto. You can go to a coffee shop, you can go to dinner and not hear anyone talk about a startup in Toronto. You cannot go anywhere in San Francisco <laughs> That's right. uh, and not hear the buzz of startups and people working and people killing themselves um, to make their company uh, the next big thing. And that just I think really invigorates you as a founder to raise your game to the next level mm -hmm. um, when you get back home. So what's next for Blueprint in 2015 and what are you up to? Yeah, so really uh, our main focus is on running another dozen hackathons this year uh, and probably about another dozen meetups around the world this year as well. Uh, and of course, we're going to continue creating our weekly interviews on the Blueprint along with um, our Launch Academy uh, we're going to continue to update it, and we have a new book uh, that we're actually going to be releasing hopefully in the next couple months. Um, so our, our heads are really in how do we create cooler resources to help hardware startups, and how do we make sure that we can connect with you know, over a dozen uh, communities uh, for all of these different events uh, that we're going to be hosting. Um, so it's a pretty exciting time for our team to really figure out um, the global scene for hardware um, mm -hmm. and, and what that looks like and, and how we can add value. That's amazing. I'm excited to see what's, uh, what you guys are up to for the remainder of the year. So where do you see the biggest opportunities for entrepreneurs and are there any technologies or industries that you're currently interested in? Well, my head is pretty deep into hardware <laughs> these days. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I really do think that hardware is the next place that we're going to see mass innovation. I think hardware is where software was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I think that we're going to see the biggest innovations in hardware come out over the next five to 10 years. You know, what is the Twitter, the Facebook, the even Google, of the hardware space. I think they're sort of yet to come in a lot of ways mm -hmm. uh, out of this new um, this new movement. And, you know, everyone talks about IoT, but I really think that, you know, almost any hardware product being created today will be internet connected, uh, if not now, inevitably. Um, so I think it's a little bit more for me about how do we move from creating gadgets to creating things that people want. And I think that software had to go through the same evolution, um, where at first people were just creating apps because you could, right? Mm -hmm. um, didn't necessarily solve a problem, but there was novelty to it, and you know, you just throw it up and create it. And eventually, we've sort of gotten to this point where you actually have to do a ton of customer research and make sure people want your product and are willing to pay for your product and go through um, a lot of business development to make any sort of SaaS product or software product work. And I think that we're about to move from, I created another wristband, I, you know, created another wearable whatever um, that, you know, is novel and people might buy it the first time, but they never pick it up again, 
to a model where people are creating things that really change people's lives. Um, I think it, the test is, you know, if you leave your keys at home, you're going to turn around, you're going to go pick up your keys. What are the next hardware products that if you left it at home or you forgot it or you didn't have it, you would care enough that you would go back and get it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find that to be a really interesting question. Yeah, no, it is. It's. Uh, I was actually at OCE uh, Monday and Tuesday this week in Toronto, and it was crazy to see the amount of um, hardware startups that are coming out. Like almost every other one was some sort of hardware um, startup, which was really interesting to see. So in the next couple of years should be um, a lot of fun to see what's going to come out of it. I really think that you know where I am right now and being able to watch sort of what's going to evolve over the next uh, couple of years in hardware is going to be a really interesting place to be. So on top of that, what apps, books, devices, or tools are you currently obsessed with right now? Huh? Are you uh, on the Apple Watch? <laughs> are you? Did you grab an Apple Watch the last couple of weeks? No, so no. I'm not on the Apple Watch uh, at this point. We do have a Pebble mm-hmm. um, that I wear sometimes, so and we did order the new Pebble. Um, haven't quite moved over to the Apple camp yet, um, but we'll sort of wait and see where that goes. I'm sure we're going to buy one for the office. I think we have about, I don't know, 80 connected devices in the office that we play with and bring to events and test out and review. So um, probably one of the biggest purchasers of connected devices out there. Um, But no, not the Apple Watch. In terms of uh, other things, I'm really obsessed with Ringly. Uh, It's actually a Highway 1 company. If you haven't heard of it, it's a connected ring um, that will vibrate or uh, light up when you're getting a call or a text message. Um, And that, I think, is a really interesting product from the sense that it makes technology fashionable, but Mm -hmm. I also see it as being sort of the Pebble Apple Watch um, replacement for women. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that what the guys at OpenROV are doing is pretty fascinating. If you don't know them, they're out of San Francisco. They do an underwater exploration robot um, that lets anyone become an explorer. And I just think that they are trying to build a community and they're really trying to, you know, chart un unconquered, undiscovered territory. And, you know, I think that that's just such an interesting objective and such a noble goal for the company. Um, And I think that there's not that many hardware companies that have that type of community and sort of bigger picture goal that they're trying uh, to accomplish. I find OpenRV interesting in that way. Yeah, I'm gonna have to check them out. Sounds amazing. So are there any last thoughts or personal models that you live by that you think others should know about? Well, I mean, I think the thing that right now has been bothering me, and I mentioned it a bit earlier, is I really want hardware in particular to move from gadgets to life-changing technologies. And I think we're on the cusp of seeing that shift happen. But if I were to give advice to anyone wanting to start out in hardware, it's like you're going to have to dedicate your next five years to this project. You know, dedicate it to something that matters. Uh, and that's something that's going to bring good to the world uh, and that will really change people's lives. Um, and then beyond that, um, general advice that I always give to entrepreneurs, um, and it's a little bit cliche, I think, at this point, but to build your network before you need it. And what I mean by build your network before you need it is that you know, if you think you're ever going to start a company, build media contacts, find designers, work with web developers, get people to trust you, you know, invest in that piggy bank of relationships by doing other people favors and attending their events and writing about other people so that when you are ready to launch your own company and you have to withdraw a lot from that piggy bank uh, as you ask people from favors, 
um, that you're actually able to and you're not spending all of your time as an early entrepreneur trying to you know, build all these connections that you could have done uh, ahead of time. So uh, that, I think that's one thing that's uh, really important for aspiring entrepreneurs. That's excellent advice. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Catherine. This was an incredible episode. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.